Hello, time for another Farmerama. This month I'm tucked away in a little corner of northern Italy, and I'm really enjoying being in a place which values its food and where it comes from. But Abby and Nigel are back in London, and they'll be here shortly to guide you through the show. And it's a really busy one today. We get to know Fit for the Future and Agroecology, two projects doing some really cool work to link up the web of sustainable learnings which are out there. A bit later on, we're both heartened and a little bit crestfallen by what we dig up on a trip to Cambridgeshire. And we cautiously dive into the Brexit debate. We're going to meet three different farming families and get their thoughts on the issues over a cup of tea. But now I'm very excited that we're joining a future farmer at the start of a very important journey by sea. One which will end up taking her crew from Scandinavia through Europe on a journey towards the Middle East. Her passengers are seeds, still to germinate flecks of potential on their way to a home buried deep in their past. Part of an artist collective called Future Farmers, which I founded in 1995, and we are leaving Oslo, Norway, September 17th, on an 1895 wooden sailboat. The cargo of this sailboat is seven handfuls of ancient grains that we've been growing um, for the last three years in Oslo, and they're all grains that fell out of production in the early 1900s and have been brought back into production around the 70s and 80s, very slowly and intently by a small group of farmers in Norway. So we're taking these grains on a journey back to where they were domesticated in the Middle East, um, to Palestine and to Istanbul, finally, where we will have a symposium and we will plant these seeds in an urban farm in Istanbul. The thing about this project is immediately people just start projecting their imagination into it and it, it it's a way of imagining, it's a way of thinking just about these seeds on a journey on a sailboat across the water. What we're trying to do is make people aware of the chain of production from planting to table, you know, from farm to table, and how that operates in their everyday life and how most of what we eat is such an invisible chain. Like, mm-hmm. maybe we go to the market, maybe we don't, maybe we only eat out. But we're trying to illustrate that chain and to and to work with people who are making that chain smaller. Highlight local economies who are building robust um, systems of resilience. And it's quite tricky, right? Because we're all traveling all over the world. So we're trying to highlight regions that are working on the idea of um, building strong local economies. And farmers who are trying to work together, which we've found often there's either a consortium that's formed or... Um, a co-op of people, of farmers who work together, because it's mm-hmm. very hard to be out there on your own. Um, so the idea is to, to link different networks and also to highlight those stories, because we maybe we can be pollen that teaches these different um, regions and communities about practices that maybe they haven't thought of. One of the main reasons we came to London was Andrew Forbes of mm-hmm. Brockwell Bake. He's um, a hero of ours and also uh, quite a hero of many of the Nordic grain farmers, um, he has been growing old ancient grains. I wouldn't say old. You know, we, had, we don't have the right word for them yet. Mm-hmm. A lot of people say cultural grains. Um, but he's been growing these 
ancient varieties, sometimes for the first time in 100 years or, or between 50 and 100 years, and bringing them back into production, even taking them out of germplasm for the first time, um, and growing them in public parks, which I just think is the most beautiful and kind of wise way of doing this, like doing it in a public place, a space of recreation, recreation. Mm -hmm. um, and I really think public parks are underutilized um, or the, the way the land is used can be much more dynamic. Mm -hmm. um, so we are bringing seeds to him. We're collecting his seeds from this year's harvest and then taking them along on the journey. We're arriving um, in London October 1st at the Hermitage Mooring, which is near the London Bridge, and um, we'll be there for three weeks, and hopefully we'll be hosting events, um, but I just want to put a shout-out to Hermitage Mooring for giving us a free place to stay in London. Amy Francesini, an amazing spirit. It's so great to hear about Amy's project and we've been really inspired by the seed journey and Nigel and I have been discussing a bit about native and native seeds or ancient grains and what that means and uh, well you were talking a bit about native breeds and well, how important they are. Yeah I mean, I mean I'm not a you know dad knows a bit more about um the arable side of things but i i'm certainly more, my focus is that it's livestock and, and certainly with regards to livestock um i'm a big fan of native traditional breeds so it's kind of like the the heirloom or the you know um uh what, what is it again she calls them ancient grains ancient but... yeah it's kind of yeah, the yeah the ancient breeds of, of you know, so there is a sort of parallel there i think almost mm -hmm. with with crops and what are the benefits of the ancient breeds or well i i you know they're, they're kind of they've been bred all you know they've developed to you know um make the most of their surroundings almost you know so you know the sussex cattle that that you know we breed are developed for sussex and and they will fatten on grass so mm -hmm. they're you know they're they're better for the environment i think as well so yeah great perspectives post-Brexit. Some voted in, some voted out. But how do farmers feel now? Here's some kitchen table thinking from the days just after the Brexit vote. Here's Monica and Fred Acast, otherwise known as Mum and Dad, <laughs> <laughs> with their thoughts. I think it's just early days. There's a lot that needs to be um, thrashed out. I mean, I would hope that whichever government is in power will put some value on home produced food and and um, care for the environment that we live in. It will most likely be better because um, if they do away with subsidies then the wife will have to pay for uh, the food and cost of production. You can't live without food mm. so you should pay for what it costs to produce. But what about importing food? you know, food that was getting sucked in from all around yeah, the world. Yeah, it's, it's always been a problem. Yeah. Um, but the world is getting, there's a lot more people in the world. Food is more and more difficult to produce. Weather's against us. 
So I think they'll have to pay whatever it costs to produce, or ask someone to starve to death. I think the housewife should pay what it costs to produce. It's not to do with whether the farmer survives. It's more to do with what uh, they, yeah, they they pay for beer, what it costs, and wine, and also on what it costs to produce. Mm. So why shouldn't they pay for milk and, and other food? Yeah, what it costs to produce is ridiculous situation to carry on. It's a wealthy country. Why can't it pay for its food? Why should it be cheap? I think uh, Daddy's view is idealistic. Um, yes, it would be great if the housewife paid for the real cost of food, but um, that seems... Uh, it's a long way from what we've got at the moment, so there's a lot got to change if that's going to happen. Um, uh, I think... Yes, it would be a good idea if people understood uh, what the true cost is. But I'm sure there will be rebellion against paying that. And the worry is that if it's cheaper to import, what well, that's what the su- supermarkets will probably try and do. Mm. So I think the power of supermarkets needs to somehow or other be reduced. Thanks to mum and dad there. Um, mm. And just perhaps a little comment to say, uh, so obviously um, <laughs> uh, dad's reference to housewives, um, I think that's just probably quite an old school term, you know, terminology, which is, you know, in this day and age is, is just really, you know, doesn't really mean too much. What I really loved about this recording is I felt like it was really honest perspective from your mum and dad and they were being very true. Pretty normal discussion around the kitchen table, to be honest. <laughs> And on to our second stop, um, a trip Nigel and I made just days after the Brexit vote was to visit Melanie and Adrian Steele. We were deep in the depths of uncertainty at this point, and it's great to hear kind of where we were at and hear from Melanie and Adrian. Yeah, yeah. The big um, question is food prices and, and whether we'll have a situation where, because a lot of the Brexit campaigning seems to be quite populist, and along with populist you get a low food, tend to get a... Um, the desire to have a low food price so that will obviously affect farming I think in the short term what worries me is because anyone who's exporting and the pound the drop in the pound has meant the exports are worth more is going to be lulled into a sense of false security I think possibly and will not be um, aware enough of of the needs to to campaign I think everyone needs to, to think about making their voices heard actually I think you've got to look at areas where you can guarantee um, a steady income. Um, Just producing a commodity product is going to be um, very, very difficult to have any form of guarantee about what that's going to be be worth. Um, I think the shorter you can make your supply chain, the better. So the closer you are to the end consumer, um, then the more likely you are to have stability in, Mm -hmm. in your um, in, your, in your enterprise, because you think the price is less likely to fluctuate. Well, we, we, we and there's a thing called the commodity cycle. The reason why farm supports were set up in the first place, even before the EU, was to cushion farmers against the commodity cycle. Um, it goes from peaks to troughs, and without protection in a trough, um, then a lot of farmers will go bust. Simple as that. Without any form of, of, of protection, we don't yet know if there will be that form of protection. Because as I say some of the um, the, the sort of more uh, libertarian 
uh, Brexit campaigners are talking about you know, ending farm support mm-hmm. uh, and opening us up to um, to, to sort of un- unrestricted market forces. Mm-hmm. Um, that would lead, I think, ultimately to a big consolidation of farm holdings and would destroy the social purpose of the common agricultural policy, which would be to keep people effectively in agriculture for, for social reasons as well as purely economic. I think the, th- the final point, really, in terms of when you're talking about my, my planning, is actually we have to encompass in the long-term planning the view of climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel it's, it's a real shame that we've left the EU because the EU was taking a lead on climate change issues, and there's a tendency amongst sort of populist right-wing politicians to disregard it, mm-hmm. to think it's a hoax. Um, and I was very concerned that the climate change deniers were all lined up on the side of Brexit. Mm-hmm. Um, we will have to consider, I did mention possibly agroforestry, I think mm-hmm. that if the climate does continue to warm, particularly in the winter months, um, then um, the idea of mixing in with, with trees mm-hmm. into our enterprise um, would be um, an interesting uh, option, <laughs> not necessarily good in terms of we don't want climate change, but we have to accept it's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of, of um, reducing sheep and increasing cattle, sheep are the most will be the most exposed sector to to global trade and being kicked out of the single market, mm-hmm. uh, as the European Union is by far our biggest marketplace. And I'm really really keen to make in people's mind is the one that there is between um, what we call traditional or sort of mixed farming and um, biodiversity so that if they're buying food that is produced on a mixed farm they're also uh, partly preserving a landscape and also all the biodiversity that goes with that landscape and I don't think that message has got across Mm -hmm. strongly enough. Agreed. Like even even if you buy organic that doesn't actually necessarily mean biodiversity. I mean no. We would hope so but there are actually huge monoculture organic farms. Yes, exactly. Um, so that is actually slightly different. In... It's an ecology message, mm-hmm. really, but it, it's a, it really is quite logical as well when mm-hmm. you think it all through. Mm-hmm. And I don't think people have have grasped it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think anyone mentioned conservation or um, environmental issues at all in the Brexit campaigning, did they? I, I, they passed me by if they did. It, it was very incidental if it was mm-hmm. mentioned at all. Yeah. It's seen as a luxury, isn't it? Yeah. I I think I'd just say I think we want to start with the very simple question of what do we want from our farming and what do we want from our food and then from that sort of simple such a fundamental question about human beings really what then um, how does that relate to all those issues you've just mentioned and then we end up hopefully with some sort of realistic debate about what subsidies are for why you know, it justifies them more, I think, as well, because I think at the moment the only um, sort of atmosphere around subsidies is an economic argument. It would be wonderful if we could reignite a passion for local food, yeah. and short supply chains, have consumers mm-hmm. really wanting to buy UK produce. Um, but I fear that the economic backdrop in the next few years is going to be rather negative, and perhaps mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. people will be looking to save and not spend. People and, will be very anxious, um, I think. A lot of anxiety. So, um, we have to bear that in mind. It's not going to happen you know, straight away. But I think we should not lose sight of the fact that it's still a very worthwhile ideal and objective long term for, for this country. And finally, to friend of the show, Ed Hamer, um, who you may remember regaling us with those wonderful folk songs at the start of the year. I farm a market garden in Devon called Chag Food Community Market Garden. Uh, and I also work on policy for the Landworkers Alliance.
So my personal perspective is that um, before the uh, referendum, I was very much in favour of remaining a member of the EU. Um, and I think it's fair to say, although the Land Workers Alliance went out to consultation beforehand, we didn't come back with a clear remit from our members for whether we should be campaigning actively on either remain or stay. We, we remained relatively neutral in the run-up to the, the referendum. But I think it's also fair to say that the, uh, anecdotally, we know that the majority of our membership were in favour of remaining in the EU. And I think that's largely um, the reasons um, that are very similar to my own. Um, was that we believed the European Union represented um, very much a, a moderating effect on UK agriculture. The, certainly the, the 2013 reform of the common agricultural policy um, led as it was by Dacian Cholios, who was a commissioner from Romania with a, a family history in small-scale uh, farming. He, was very much, he very much understood the plight of small-scale ecological farmers across the EU. And as a result, he was able to introduce into the 2013 reforms several concrete pieces of um, uh, legislation, policy recommendations that were actively supportive of farmers like ourselves. The first one he identified was a small farmer scheme, um, which was an option of modulating 20% of the national envelope. Um, of payments um, directly to farmers on less than 20 hectares. Um, there was also an option on capping the individual payments received by, by the largest landowners at €150,000 a year. And then there are also several options on reducing bureaucracy for small-scale producers themselves. Regrettably, um, when those reforms were introduced to the UK, they were interpreted at the time by um, the Conservative government and particularly by the Environment um, Minister at the time, Owen Patterson. He was a staunch advocate of large-scale industrial farming uh, and genetic engineering. Uh, GM crops. His interpretation of the policy actually made it a lot harder um, in the economic climate for small-scale producers to survive and to thrive. Mm. Our initial um, reaction was certainly one of um, dismay in the sense that um, we realise now that we are very much on our own within Europe in two years' time, we are going to be, um, and whatever food and farming policy we have going forward, we have to fight a lot harder than perhaps we might have done before um, to get recognition and support for small-scale ecological producers. How does that change how you're farming day-to-day? Well, um, in many ways it doesn't. We, because we're farming on two hectares, um, we're not eligible for a single-farm payment. Um, and we're not eligible for all the environmental support that comes with getting a single farm payment or the, what is now the basic payment scheme. So I'd say from a support point of view, it, it won't make a difference, um, you know, what happened pre-Brexit and post-Brexit. But the important thing to point out is that we are going to have a national food and farming policy. And um, if we take the government at their word, if we take DEFRA at their word, they are open to um, consultation with any stakeholders who are involved in that process. And as the Land Workers Alliance, we see ourselves as an important um, voice in that, in that room. Um, we see ourselves as being able to articulate um, a, a point of view that is not represented by the National Farmers Union or by the Country Landowners Association. Um, and we think it's important that our voice is there. Ed is also policy person at Landworkers Alliance. We will be hearing more from him in detail about what they are planning to do in the post-Brexit environment soon. And this is certainly a debate which we are going to be coming to again and again. So Nigel, obviously your mom and dad uh, were clear that they voted They voted out. to leave, yeah. And what was your perspective and where are you at now? 
when the outcome was clear that we were we we are leaving, I was some I was somewhat dismayed, um, like probably many other farmers that voted to remain. Um, but I've come round to the idea that actually um, perhaps we can make this a real positive opportunity to move forward and reshape our um, farming and food policy here in the UK. Agreed. I feel exactly the same. Yeah. Like regardless of what you voted, it's like this is how it is, and we need to move forward. And I think there are lots of opportunities for uh, the farmers of the future to influence the future policies right now. And that's a really exciting place to be. Our boat was built by Colin Archer, who Mm -hmm. was a famous boat builder. And he was known for building the Fram, which was the first boat to make it to the very far north in the North Pole. And that was led by Fridtjof Nansen. That was a crazy adventure because they didn't sail there. They slammed the boat into ice and they floated for two years with the ice to the north. Normally you're very busy on a boat, but they had to find things to do. Mm-hmm. So the captain organized this beautiful library of books and made them read every day. So I'm going to read you some of the titles that were on this journey to the north. Soul, Life, and Intelligence in Animals. From the Chinese Wall to Japan in the Woods. Science and Religion. The Birds. The Story that Transformed the World. Great Thoughts 1 through 13. At the South Pole. The Loss of John Humble. Adam and the Wide, Wide Sea. Five Weeks in a Balloon, Modern Miracles, The Rise of the Dutch Republic, The Short Story of a Long Life. There's a lot of information out there which could potentially support you on your farms, but where to start in terms of finding it all? Obviously, we hope that Farmerama is going some way towards helping here, but we're always keen to feature other people who are on the same mission. Many different organizations across boundaries and labels have grouped together to form Agroecology. It's a curated knowledge base for ecological farming ideas. We hear from Suzanne Pidel, who sowed the seeds of agroecology. We started off with organic agriculture only. Nick Lampkin, our director, and Alistair League started to produce a report on what agroecology can contribute to sustainable, sustainable intensification. And that was one um, joint project where we looked at organic agriculture, integrated agriculture, agroforestry, permaculture, and various different um, ideas. And at the same time, the Dalesford Farm and Foundation were becoming more and more interested in sharing the good practice that has been developed here and we agreed that we're going to give this a try. So various different organizations that all have resources to contribute. I was aware over many years that there has been quite a lot of interesting and practical information for farmers, but that it would be hard to find because it was this project here, that article there, something here and there. We wanted the resource to be um, accessible for farmers, so practical practical, sustainable agriculture regardless of labels. Passionate about that, we're not trying to telling farmers what to do, we're trying to offer them opportunities. If you're interested in this, then this is somebody who has done it. If you would like to know more about cover crops, here are some examples. We don't want somebody to say, I can't do this because I'm 
because I'm not organic or because I'm integrated or because I'm this or because I'm that. What we're trying to do is reliable, so the information is somewhat vetted by somebody, is from a good source. Um, and also, if it's not compatible with organic agriculture, it will indicate so, so that those that are organic know that this maybe isn't everything for me, but um, still, there's so much to be gained from sharing the knowledge between the non-organic and the organic um, partners at the moment because everybody has got a different approach. Farms are different. You can't find one solution that works for every farm. You, so my, uh, our belief is to create opportunities that farmers can find for, for themselves and make more informed choices. And um, really, if they want to know this, then there might be a resource to help them to answer that question. But um, we don't want to tell anybody this is how you should do it. That's not what we are about at all. This is not what we try to do. And the place to find all those awesome resources is on www.agricology.co.uk. One of the projects featured at the Agricology Day was Fit for the Future Network, who share information about sustainable energy projects already in place with people looking to implement similar ideas. Everything from reed bed water treatment to solar roofs. They can put you in touch with farmers or organizations who've already got a system in place and fill you in on what works and doesn't. More now from Sophie McGovern. I'm Sophie. I work for the Fit for the Future Network, which is a partnership between the National Trust and a sustainability charity called Ashton. We're three years in now and our mission is to make sure that all land and property owning organisations are sharing best practice and collaborating to become more sustainable. Um, so we do this in various ways. We enable the sharing of knowledge and expertise by linking people up who are working on similar projects, by organising site visits and events. Um, it makes a huge difference if you can bypass the contractors and the installers and go straight to somebody else who's already done it can tell you what works, what doesn't work and help you along with your own projects. So for example, when Scottish Canals were putting together their um, sustainability strategy for the next few years, they wanted to see what another organisation had done. So they visited a Hafferley clan farm in Wales, uh, which is a National Trust farm, to see the renewables that have been installed there. Um, so they saw a large-scale hydro project, solar, a solar array, uh, biomass, heat pumps, and learnt about what had worked well there and what hadn't worked so that they could form their own plans um, up in Scotland. So whether you want to put some solar panels on um, maybe uh, an old farm building just to, just to power that building itself, or if you want to build a solar array that will actually feed back into the grid, we work right through from very small-scale to large-scale projects as well. Thanks so much, Sophie. Great to hear about that project on the day. It, yeah, the day was fabulous, and mainly because we heard from like 10 or 15 yeah, different there were a lot projects. Of, a lot of different speakers and, and, and different kind of bodies all feeding into agroecology. So I think it was nice to hear from some of the, the heads of these different organisations and what they're doing and their perspectives. Um, and it was kind of interesting to see this mixed knowledge base in action because there were some farmers who were like avidly organic there are some farmers who are really into trees and there were some who uh you know used some chemicals and and mm. everyone was kind of interacting and sharing what they had learned and I, I i always find that so promising um when people just kind of get over their differences in opinion and share what works. Quite a few of the projects were farmer-led and we were hearing directly from farmers who had already implemented things. And I think that's one of the keys. It's very hard to 
you know, find that information. What farmers are looking for is, is actually what really works on the ground. Mm-hmm. As opposed the nitty gritty. The nitty gritty, which, which is what we're all about. What we're all about. Farmerama. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I found that really exciting. And that's, I think, it, you know, one of the things we've learned is that farmers learn best from other farmers. If you've seen it in action, there's nothing like that to convince you that it might work for you too. Yep. Oslo, Vele, London, Cardiff, Antwerp, Gijon, Asturias, Majorca, Rome, Haifa, Istanbul. And finally, we were totally bowled over as we uncovered the real story behind soil tests at the National Trust Soils Training Day. National Trust farmer Richard Morris was perplexed by soil tests showing some potentially worrying results. But Stephen Briggs, the soil specialist at Innovation for Agriculture, was on hand with some revelations. I've been particularly interested in a number of years in soil organic matter and the soil carbon that's tied up with that and looking to improve that. Because as we improve it, the soil structure improves and our yields improve. Something that's been concerning me through our organic conversion is phosphates. The measure, as farmers we've used for years, the phosphate indices, has been declining quite rapidly. And I've, I've been sort of quite worried about whether I'd continue to get good germination rates and hence decent yields from the land. Stephen Briggs, uh, Soil and Water Manager for Innovation for Agriculture. And the, the answer to that really is that the index-based soil uh, analysis methods are really only measuring the phosphate that's in solution and plant available at any point in time. When rea- in reality, there's a great deal more phosphate in reserve in the soil, which isn't being met- measured by that methodology. But as one improves soil management through high levels of organic matter and better biological activity, that biology in turn then mineralizes phosphate into available forms for the plant. So there's a lot more phosphate in the soil in the reserve account, which we can bring into the current account and make available to plants through better soil management, better soil biology, current analysis methods with index-based systems to start measuring that. The, the, The accepted methodologies for measurement really are just measuring Uh, the amount of nutrients like phosphates that we need to apply to meet crop nutrition. They're not measuring what's in the soil at all. Reserves uh, are are usually far greater. I I use an analogy of it's like having a current account where you're making small deposits and quick withdrawals, Mm -hmm. but also having a big reserve account. And it's it's how do we access that reserve account and bring some of those uh, uh, long-term reserves of phosphate into an available form and that's really through biology and feeding the biology with soil organic matter is absolutely fundamental so we have to we have to look at what we're measuring um, in different ways to, to fully understand that the all break system of measurement is is looking at the balances of magnesium calcium um, uh, phosphate calcium and trying to establish balances or, or uh, ratios between those to try and balance the soil uh, mineralogy to make it um, have the potential to perform in the best way possible. So what the 
Albrecht system is doing is looking not only at the plant available forms, but the reserve forms of minerals, phosphate, magnesium, calcium, etc. So trying to understand those reserve levels and what we can do to try and unlock those. Uh, the other, the other sort of third level to that is starting to look at biological assessments of biology in terms of uh, fungi, bacteria, mycorrhizae, nematodes, uh, and uh, uh, microbiology and trying to look at how we can feed that biology to make it work for us so that we can become subterranean livestock farmers. You know, you live and learn. I can see the indices going down on, on, on the tests and the measures we took, um, but our crop yield and crop health is actually has been increasing for the last seven years as we've got further into the organic conversion. So that is, is a great indicator that we're, we are achieving what we set out to achieve, improvement in soil health. Um, and then aside to that, the, the sort of biodiversity, the natural habitat and the, um, the bugs and the beasts that live around our farm have increased tremendously and hence um, farmland birds. Who knew that soil tests don't really tell you what's in the soil? I was like totally flabbergasted by that insight and I just found it kind of very disconcerting that these long-term norms continue to define how we perceive things and and it was one way that kind of conventional agriculture still had a hold on our understanding of soil. To me, I had always understood soil tests as being scientifically correct, mm. but actually, you know, even though Richard knew he was regenerating his soil, the science was saying otherwise. Mm-hmm. For me, this was crazy because like even on our farm in Chile, you know, everyone keeps saying, oh, you should do soil tests and you should test all parts of your soil to see what you need to put here and there. Mm -hmm. And my dad has always been like, well, the tests aren't that helpful. Like Mm. they weren't helping him figure things out. You know, a big part of it is like listening, you know, it's it's like watching and listening to the land, isn't it? And Mm -hmm. seeing how crops respond. And Mm -hmm. I think you can tell almost as much from that as from you know, the different MPK levels or something like that, mm-hmm. which is obviously the kind of the conventional way of testing soil. So mm-hmm. there's a lot more to it. It's just really important that as this regenerative agriculture practice develops, that we, alongside it, have the science develop with it. Because otherwise you can just see that these principles will uh, hold us back. So off for now. Bye-bye. Thank you to every one of you for listening. Something all of you can do to help is write us a review on iTunes, because it's really good at getting us noticed, and any way you can share the show with your farmer friends is of course appreciated. We're also really keen to hear what you enjoy and what you don't, and what we can do to make this programme useful and enjoyable for you. And we'll be back next month, hopefully with all of us together in the same place.